Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast all about early stage web developers and the mentors and teachers that helped them along the way. Hey, Buyusile, thanks so much for joining me for the Mycelium Network Podcast. The pleasure is mine. I'm happy to be here. How's your, how's your day been so far? Uh, it's been a good day. It's been a good day. It's raining here in Zimbabwe, so the rain is always welcome. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. So, yeah. um, I think let's just, just get this conversation right off to the uh, to a start. Um, so, I know you from way back in the day when we met at a Mozilla event, I believe it was. I think it might yes, even have yes. been something to do with Firefox OS still back in the day. Um, yeah, but- I was in Johannesburg. That is correct. That is correct. And um, after that, I've been following you on Twitter and I've been seeing the conversations you've been having and all the things you've been up to. And when I started this whole community and I started the podcast, I've always meant to invite you. So I'm glad that it's that I finally did and that you were available and that we can have this conversation. Because I do think that you have a interesting perspective um, and that you have a good story to tell. And I would love to to give you a voice. So to get us started, um, tell us more about who you are, um, how you got into development, um, where did you grow up, anything that in your early years that might have been a catalyst to, you know, kickstart your career, kickstart your your interest in tech. And then just as an aside, at some point, I'm always curious when people have like a pseudonym on the internet, what the story behind it is. And like yeah. on GitHub and Twitter, you have this pseudonym called Terra Mayar, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if there's a story behind that. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, that's okay. Let me let me tell my story. So, I I was I was raised in Zimbabwe. Um, I've always loved tech and computers, and I've always been intrigued by how they work. And um, I I'd say I'm a logical person. You know, I think in mm-hmm. very very uh like in, in a bullet point kind of way you know like a very sequential when computers work the same and so i just understood them and so i've always loved computers and i used to i used to go to my sister's workplace just to play with her computer back in the day we didn't have a computer press i didn't have a personal computer at home so the only computers i came across were computers in people's workplaces so i would always visit uh, friends and family's offices just to use their computer and that's how I got to learn how to use a computer and then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. once I knew enough I started going to internet cafes messing around on the internet you know started joining forums and uh, uh, chat groups and things like that and so that's how I that's how my interest in computers was uh, what it peaked at that point I'd say and then after high school, I went into I went to a polytechnic college. I studied IT, uh, so I learned formally uh, about computers and information technology. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to graduate because of financial uh, problems and some other personal uh, reasons that kept me from completing uh, that course. But I still loved it and. Uh, Mm-hmm. I still carry that knowledge I gained from them with me. So after I finished, or after uh, college was done, 
I started contributing to open source. That's when I started. I found Mozilla. I joined Mozilla community. At first, I was just doing translation. I worked on Firefox OS translation into Ndebele, the language I speak here. Mm-hmm. And then from there, that I mean, as I met more people, I got more and more involved in the community. I then contributed to QA. Uh, we used to do QA testing for pre-release Firefox builds and pre- even Firefox OS at, at some point. And then that was when I was introduced to programming because a lot of the QA engineers at Mozilla used Python to automate the tests that they used to run against the Firefox or some, many of the internal Mozilla websites they were testing. So that's when I, I was introduced to Python, I got interested, and I started learning it. So I started learning, that was around 2013, 2014, I think. And yeah, I started, that's when my Python journey started. And then after that, I, uh, after a few years, I learned Python. I watched uh, some YouTube tutorials, I read some books, I bought some courses, and I got good at it. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to get a job. Because something the tech bros on YouTube don't tell you is, uh, you know, when you're learning a tool or a programming language, you need to learn something that makes sense for where you are. And mm. Python isn't, there isn't a big market for Python here in Zimbabwe. So I learned that the hard way. But yeah, um, after a while, I, find, I eventually found remote jobs. And that's how I got into software development. Uh, using Python. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. That is an interesting perspective to think about not only which language, but which language is in demand where you live. Um, I guess that's, that, that's to some extent true in South Africa as well. I know, I, I, I don't know now, I've been, I've not been super in touch with the workforce in South Africa for quite some time, but I know when I when I started, Java was definitely the language du jour. Like if you wanted a job, you had to know Java. Um, uh, that's why I always said I I, I have a love hate relationship with Java because I never enjoyed the language, but I. I am grateful for the opportunities that it given me because it introduced me to open source um, and it allowed me to get a job, a decent paying job, um, which allowed me to explore some other avenues. But um, I definitely quickly discovered that for me, that wasn't, that wasn't the language and especially not J2EE, you know, the enterprise stuff was definitely not where my love and interest lie, but I'm, I'm grateful for what it, the, what it introduced me to. Um, so is there a story behind Terra Major or is it just something you picked? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I forgot to mention, I forgot to mention. So when I was fooling around on the internet, I wanted to have a, uh, a pseudonym I could use across all my socials, right? And the, the name Vuyisile is a pretty common name mm. here in, in Africa. So most of the time when I try to use the name, it will be taken. So I had to come up with something unique, but that also uh, spoke to the kind of person I was. So uh, Terra Major is uh, an acronym. It's, it's I, I'd say it describes me in a sense. It, it stands for uh, tremendously exuberant, resolute, and real attitude. That's a terror. Oh. And I think that's that's what I am. 
I like to say. And then major is just like a like a like a major, like a title from the, like in the army. Oh, you know, okay. Someone who has that attitude and who's also a major. And then I just spelt it different, weirdly, so that I wouldn't I would make I would always be unique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So it, it, so that I did that with us as as young, just straight out of college, and uh, the name stuck. Unfortunately, I've built my my like my brand so to speak quote unquote uh around that name so i haven't really changed it so you'll find most of my socials i'm terra major on most of my yeah. socials it's uh like github twitter everywhere mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's yeah. very interesting yeah i always like hearing the stories behind the names so um as you mentioned even though um python wasn't the language that you needed in zimbabwe to get a job it's still a language that you mm-hmm. that you learned and I know that you love Python. Well, that's what I can tell from from <laughs> from yeah, your yeah. tweets and like all this stuff you do. <laughs> so, um, and and I have to say, like, if I had to pick a backend language um, other than Node, i.e., JavaScript, I would probably pick Python as well. I really love the syntax. Um, I really like um, the 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 rules of Python. Like, how are you thinking Python? I I'm. It's, it, it resonates with me very much. So, so, but you, as somebody who uses Python as your main language, what is it about Python that attracted you? And, you know, what do you love about Python? Okay. So, like I mentioned firstly, is I was, I, I learned Python because that's what all the cool engineers of Mozilla used, right? That's what, the, that's what first got me into Python. But then, mm-hmm. as I learned, it, it was really easy for me to learn, you know, uh, unlike uh, languages like C or Java. Uh, it, it read like English. It, it was, I mean, it's very straightforward. You could, you could pick up yeah. a Python program and figure out what it does, even when you're not very experienced with programming. So that was that was what got me interested in Python. But really, what made me love the language as as much as I do is the community. You know, it is a very fantastic community. And as someone who was um, finding their way, I, you know, I was on my own. I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have the, a lot of support here. So I had to lean on the Python community to. Uh, basically get mentorship, get opportunities. And the community was fantastic, you know. Uh, Very friendly people, very helpful, and um, very accommodating. So that's what really uh, made me like the language as much as I do. But another thing is, um, it's it's a bit of, it's, it's really sentimental. Because, like, I learned Python, and then I couldn't get a job. So I had to make a choice because either I pick up a language like Java or, you know, like one of the .NET languages that are common here in Mm -hmm. order to get a job or I could just stick it out, you know, like and not give up and just push, keep pushing until I got the job because I already put in the time to learn this language. So that's what I did. I chose the second option. I just, I was like, hey, you know what? You've really put in this work. Just see it through, you know, so I... I went through a very difficult phase where I forced myself to learn enough Python to get a job. That was my goal. I was like, you know what, just get a job that where you can use Python and then that then that, that way I won't feel like a failure for learning it. And so it's one of those things where I just had to stick through with it, you know, like I had it had yeah. I had to make it work. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. So I I did that, I got the job, and now I'm actually trying to move away from python and learn different languages i don't want to be that python the python guy you know i just want to be able to code in python mm-hmm. and other languages so yeah 
Mm-hmm. Is there any other language specifically that you're thinking about? Uh, Go and Rust uh, on my radar. Yeah, those are good yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I always mean to learn Rust, but <laughs> JavaScript evolves so fast that I'm finding it hard enough to keep up with JavaScript. Exactly, exactly. But I'm just like, oh my goodness, what's this new thing in JavaScript today? Oh, okay, wait, let me just figure this one out first before mm-hmm. I try a new mm-hmm. language. But at some point, I'd like to learn Rust because I think um, I think some of the backend stuff that I'm doing, I um, I think especially the one side project I'm working on, if that kicks off and is mm-hmm. successful, I think it would be beneficial if I have the backend written in Rust as opposed to in Node. Yeah. I think Rust will allow me to scale much, much better um, than doing Node. Because with Rust, if I understand correctly, I'm going to be much closer to the metal um, yes, instead yes. of having to go through a translation layer that that then speaks to the metal, mm-hmm. which is always a good thing if you want For to performance, eke, yeah. eke out that extra bit of performance. Mm-hmm. So I'll probably just have to like that is that's basically how I learn. I put myself in a situation where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this project and I'm going to do it in Rust, and now I I have no choice. I have to learn it. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's just how that's just how I learn. Um, so. I have to think which 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 area I want to go into. Uh, let's dig into community a little bit, because okay. I um, among the many things I do is well, I've started this community called My Sedum Network, but I also um, I'm also the community manager for MD and Web Docs at uh, mm-hmm. Mozilla. So I'm more and more involved in everything community, and one of the reasons for it is. Um, like you said, I think it's often the differentiator and the enabler um, for a lot of people um, where you don't feel alone. Because I think oftentimes it's it's not easy to give up, but you're more likely to give up if you don't have a community that either holds you accountable or simply inspires you or both. Yeah. yeah. So – what are what what are your feelings? So that that's that's how I think about community. What what is important to you about community? Well, it's, it's two things really: it's sharing of skills and uh, opportunities. You know, like when you're when you're learning on your own, when you're self-taught, or when you're just figuring stuff out from doing a bunch of tutorials online, you really don't know what you don't know. And the communities, it's beneficial to be part of a community with people who are more experienced than you because they can help you see the things or figure out the things you're supposed to know that you don't, you're not aware that you don't know, you know. So that helps a lot. And it helps also, like you mentioned, to see people doing the stuff you want to do in the real world and, you know, actually making an impact using the stuff you're learning. So it gives mm-hmm. you then motivation to work towards a goal to be like that. Like I mentioned, I learned Python because the cool engineers at Mozilla were using it and it looked cool. And I liked that. I wanted to be like them. And then that's what got me involved. And then along the way, as I was learning, I had people in the community I could reach out to for help when I needed it. And these are people who are leaders in respecting different fields and so I knew I was always getting the right kind of guidance and the right kind of information. And 
it helped to have that. Unlike where you just have to Google like on Stack Overflow or something, it helped to have that human connection. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Um, so then on a slightly related but um, tougher topic, uh, mm-hmm. I'd just like to get your input. Um, so I recently learned that of all contributions to open source, only 17% comes from Africa. That blew my mind because that's a very, very small number if you take into account how many people um, are on this continent. Yeah. Now, from the, so my one, my one question is, what do you think are holding people back from it? And then um, what role can open source play in, in lifting people up and creating opportunity? Because I strongly believe open source has tremendous uh, possibility to open mm-hmm. up doors for people. And I think you've experienced it through the whole Mozilla thing and you mentioned getting into open source early. So yeah. what are your thoughts on those topics? Like why do you think there's such a small number of people contributing to open source and like what can we do about that? Ah, man, this one is a, a tricky one because I think it's it's to do with uh, lack of access. So I'd say mm-hmm. there's this poor, poorly developed infrastructure that plays a role. Um, lack of lack of skills to effectively contribute to some open source project, and the case also falls under infrastructure is that internet access is not widely distributed. I mean, evenly distributed in Africa. So you find that um, in landlocked countries generally the internet tends to be slower because they don't have a lot of inland fiber connections so mm, because mm. it's slower they use technologies like uh, you know satellite um, uh, UHF and whatnot these are slow and expensive so internet access for the most part is is not is not not a lot of people have access to high speed internet and if they do have it it's, it's expensive that's the first problem in most yeah. of Africa, you know, then there's of course the power problems and it's a lot, lot, lot of infrastructure problems. But then that aside, yes. um, I think the second thing, the second reason why we don't have a lot of um, contributions in open source is is time. You know, I'd, I'd say it, it's it, one has to be privileged in a sense to be able to contribute to open source. I don't like saying this, but I'll say it here. Um, because you need to have time you're willing to give away basically for free because mm-hmm. you're not being compensated for the time to work on something. So mm-hmm. not a lot of people have that time because most people, especially people from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds, they're more focused on putting food on the table. So they're doing paid yep. work. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's the second thing. And then I think the third thing would be uh, skills, right? So we, Africa in general, hasn't had a lot of time to uh, develop skill and talent as much as the West or Asia has, you know, so we're, we're still playing catch up with the rest of the world. So there's still a, a skills gap that needs to be filled. And I think once that is filled, we'll, we'll have developers or community, members of the community in, in positions where they can contribute better. So you'll find that most of the 
contributions to open source, I think, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think you'll find that most of them come from economies that generally perform better, you know, like Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, or Kenya. You know, so the better infrastructure, better better economies, and better levels of education, and better access to hardware, and um, like these opportunities. You know, you even have big tech companies setting up lots of startups. So it's yeah. it's it's a, it's a very difficult problem, but I think it's, there's definitely lots of opportunity in in I mean contributing to open source, and I I. I gained a lot from working in open source. I learned a lot of things that I didn't wouldn't otherwise have learned just from reading books or or watching video tutorials. You know, I've had opportunities that came as a result of that. But unfortunately the unfortunate truth is that it's not easy for everyone to do to get into it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I also I also sometimes wonder um, because in in the few interactions I've had um where we've like during Hacktoberfest we we as a community worked on this uh project that's ongoing but um we kind of focused on it and um it was incredible to find how unfriendly uh, a lot of um open source tools and stuff is if you're on a windows machine for example as opposed to a mac oh, or yeah. even linux um and i and i and i think in africa it's probably more prevalent for people to have Windows machines than it is to have Macs. Yes, for yes. sure, Macs. And um, maybe a lot of people don't know about Linux and um, also don't know which are the more user-friendly um, installations of those that has a more Windows-like experience, but mm-hmm. will give you a better. And then, of course, Windows has come a long way in in the sense of uh, Windows subsystem for Linux, but you need to run the very latest version of Windows. And, you know, that sometimes means you have to have a pretty decent machine. So if you can't afford the expensive computer, you can't run the latest Windows. And so, you know, you don't have access to WSL. So there you go. So I think that might be um, another problem. And and you mentioned hardware access being one of the problems. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if there is... If something like an incubator for open source in Africa would go somewhere towards this, because what I'm thinking is it's a means for young, and this not young in age, young mm-hmm. and experienced people to have a starting point where they get paid a decent enough salary to mm-hmm. work on open source. And through that, they then can get... Um, introduced to more opportunities you know so it's, it's the incubator serves as a, a on-ramp into the industry so it takes yeah. people in and it skills them up and through skilling them up they get paid but they also contribute to open source projects which again benefits a whole large part of the economy because everybody depends on open source these days but then mm-hmm. it, it it gets them to a point where they can then leave the incubator and either start their own thing or um, join a company because now they have experience and they could contribute to open source because, like you said, they can still put food on the table because they're actually getting paid to do that. What do you think about something like that? I actually think it's a good idea and I'd I'd really prefer it if this came from like the highest level, say, have government introduce an, an 
governments to introduce open source policies, right? That mm. policies that mm. would that would drive demand for open source software. If, say, for instance, a government were to uh, stipulate that all their all government departments would use open source operating systems and open source software. So yeah. that that would that would that would mean you'd have to have people skilled in installing these operating systems and managing these operating systems and using the, the software and it would save them money, which is a good thing for government, because the, most of these tools are free. Uh, open source is free. And then yeah. it would then drive uh, create demand for people with skills in using or handling open source uh, software. And then these incubators would then have a pipeline. Like you, 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 you draw in the talent, you train the talent, and you have somewhere to move that talent to because it, there's demand on the other side. So I think it would be to be a really good thing uh, for all parties involved. You know, open source is free. Uh, so that cuts costs. It, it creates opportunities for people using it. And then... It's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe I think I think it's a very good idea for governments to adopt this. Um, my <clears throat> experience is that is a that is <laughs> it's a hard place to start. <laughs> okay. Um, it feels like it 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 almost feels like industry um, needs to. I don't know how exactly this would work, but they have to kind of put pressure on the government to adopt these things. Cause I'm not yeah. sure that, that the governments even know, like they just, they just pay the licensing fee they've been paying for 20 years because it's what they've been doing. I don't know mm -hmm. if there's mm -hmm. enough, you know, like companies, I know there's, there's a company in South Africa called Open Up and they mm -hmm. do quite a bit of this where they actually interface with municipalities and stuff like this. And they are very much into opening up data, but also the use of open source and that kind of stuff. So I think it's kind of like a, a, an education kind of thing where there needs to be these companies that show government the benefits of open source yeah. and show the possibility of creating jobs and developing talent. And maybe through through creating something... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And m maybe through setting an example, they'd mm -hmm. be more willing to adopt it. And you'd probably have to start on a small scale. You might have yeah. to start with your own municipality and getting them to adopt some open source software. And then them going to their leaders and saying, hey, my goodness, look, we've been using this thing that we learned from these other guys. And mm -hmm. it's saving us so much money and there's a bunch of people that's being trained that knows how to run these things. And then maybe, you know, it goes up the chain and up the chain and eventually it gets adopted wider. I think there are some Asian countries that's actually doing a really good job with this. Um, I, for some reason, Taiwan always comes to my mind, but I'm not sure if it's them who has really adopted like a complete. And I think even South America, like Brazil and them, I think they've mm -hmm. also adopted open source software quite, quite heavily. So I think there's scope for that. And I do think that it, in the end of the day, that would be a good thing. But I do think industry will need to set an example yeah. and proof that and offer proof that it's not just talk it's you know it's for real like there's the benefits are real but yeah i think that that might be something that um would be nice if one can get like a couple of companies together um to like you know 
try this out and see and see what one can do. I think there are some education, mm-hmm. um, some places doing education in South Africa that that has kind of got this idea. But again, there you sit with the problem of the the monetary problem, whereas you're studying, so you're not earning anything yet. And yeah, so you yeah. have to, and that that's definitely a massive problem. I mean, unemployment in South Africa is something like 50%. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you have an unemployment rate of 50%, people don't have a lot of free time to, to give away <laughs> of their precious yeah. time that they yeah. have. So, so you have to incentivize them monetarily as well. So on that topic, is- yep. Yeah, I just I just want to say like this has a positive effect on people actually involved in work that actually use the software because say a municipality needs a certain feature, right? They could have their employees build the feature and then release it back into open source. You know, exactly. so I mean it's a it's a it's a hard problem to solve, but it has uh, lots of benefits if it were to be implemented right. Yeah, I know for sure. And I mean, mm-hmm. and, and talking about that, I, I, I know you had, you were a freelancer. I think you recently, um, took a full-time position. Yeah. Um, am I correct there? Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <clears throat> to dig into that a little bit, uh, so I am, I, in the beginning of this year, I officially started my own company. Um, it's an open startup which means we are fully transparent um, in terms of income, in terms of what we pay people, um, Mm -hmm. who our employees are, if the employee is um, okay with it, of course. We're not going to publish their stuff publicly if they don't want us to do that, but so far everybody's fine with that. Um, Our expenses, everything is open. Um, And of course, we are heavily invested in open source. The company is completely based around open source. We give back to open source. We have a mandate of any project we rely on, we have to e- either financially or through contributions give back. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your product? But so um, at the moment, it's mostly around consulting and education, but we're we're building two products one that's um developer facing it's called developer tool chest uh it's a way of collecting a bunch of tools that you use often and giving you easy access to it mm-hmm. so you can cre- you just contribute to it anything and you tag it in ways that you'd obviously want to find it later on and then it's just like a search interface and it also okay. allow easy easy discovery of other tools you might not know about. And then we have some plans for it going forward. The other one is called Our Backyard. And that is a platform to help small businesses um, get in front of people. So it's easy to find big box stores because they have thousands of rands to spend on advertising and big mm-hmm. signs and big buildings, whereas a lot of small businesses run from their own little house and, you know, they don't have a yeah. bunch of money. And so the idea is that our backyard is literally what the name suggests. It's where you go to find small businesses in your own community and oh, support nice. support local business in your own community. So it's it's got it, you know, it's got that good thing to it, but then mm-hmm. down the line um, – we will look at how we can responsibly um, make some money from it, because of course, you know, at some point it needs to it needs to make a profit. Of course, but yeah. We want to do it responsibly, so 
privacy is extremely important to us. So we don't want to stick a bunch of advertising in front of you. We don't want to track you everywhere you go, but we'll find a business model that works. Maybe, maybe it's something as simple as if this service is valuable to you, give money to it on a monthly yeah. basis. Maybe it's maybe it's a business model like that, kind of like Open Collective. Maybe mm-hmm. it's it's because it's also built open source. The whole platform is built in the open. Um, so, but with that said, it's not easy. <laughs> it's definitely not imagine. easy, yeah. and um, doing it in the African context brings its own challenges. Um, and I have um, I heard a talk on a podcast of a guy called Lex Friedman where he spoke to a woman that she started a business in Lagos and then she started a business in the US. And she Mm -hmm. was talking about how different the experience was between the two. And what it boiled down to was that in the United States, with all its problems, the system is set up for you to succeed. Whereas, in her words, in Africa, it's set up for you to fail. Because the infrastructure, the support, it's just yeah. not there. More yeah. often than not, she got where she did because she knew the mayor in the town and she could ask for a favor. Um, whereas if she didn't, you know, she might never have gotten electricity to her business and the business would have failed. Um, all mm-hmm. these kinds of things. So I'm curious because there's, there's another thing. Let me, let me, because I know you struggled with this. Um, so if you're in, a first world country and you mm. want to experiment with something. So you want to create a newsletter and then you want to put some aspect of it. Maybe you want to allow people to um, post comments on your newsletter, but only if they are a paid member, for example. Now yeah. there's an array of options to do that. You can use Substack, you can use ghost. There's a bunch of things, but if you're from Africa, you're going to hit a, um, a problem. And that is because the only processor they support is Stripe, and we we do not have access to Stripe in Africa. In the entire continent, we don't. Now, Stripe offers this thing called Stripe Atlas. I don't know if you've heard about that. Uh, but that, is that like um, uh, where they set up a business for you or something? Yeah, they create an LLC for you in Delaware in the United yeah, States. Yeah. But the thing is, it costs $500 um, to get that set up. And then $100 per year to keep that LLC going. Now, if you just want to experiment with a newsletter, that's a massive investment of money for something you don't know if it's going to succeed and where you're going to charge people probably like $2 a month for a subscription. So with all that context that I've given now, what what were the problems that you faced that made you – that put you in a position where you had to say, you know what – I'm going to have to stop this freelance thing for a while and just just get a get a paid job where I'm a little bit more certain of my salary. Uh so before I started like working as a developer I used to run a, a web hosting business. Uh for I ran it for a few years and uh the biggest problem I've faced was the changing and like changes in, in business environment in Zimbabwe, you know, like the regulations are always changing. It's very hard to plan for your business, you know, um, and getting money 
into a bank account is very difficult because like I think mm-hmm. our current our currency has changed I think we've changed currencies like five four or five times in the past few years you know so one minute we're using US dollars next minute we're using something different and so that lack of consistency just made it very difficult so there were problems that were bigger than me that affected the clients that I had you know like everyone was affected by this business environment so you'd have situations where clients weren't able to pay me on time or if they were able to pay me I just have problems collecting the money because if you have a client outside the U- U- outside Zimbabwe getting money into Zimbabwe is very difficult because of these problems with our banking system and, and, and everything so I just that, that was the biggest problem for me is just moving money like cash I had cash flow problems because of the 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 changes uh, and lack of consistency so I'd say that's that was the first one and then the second one uh, second challenge I had is uh, it's it, we have a number of payment options here you know like we have mobile money we have um, bank transfers we have um, like online payments from debit cards and credit cards but getting support for all those is very difficult for instance the mobile money is run by a few telecoms companies or the biggest one is eco Mm -hmm. eco cash and um they're not very open to providing their api to like small businesses so if you're starting out and you want to accept eco cash payments or mobile money payments it's not very easy to get that so that that's that's one of the first problems uh, and then the second one is the payment processes we have here charge very high um, fees, just like just like Stripe does, you know, like their yearly fees, and so it can be it can go in the way go against running your business because you pay, end up paying more to these payment processes than you you are actually taking in. And then yeah. what the last straw for me was the payment process I was using at the time to shut down, you know, no warning, no, no compensation, you know, no communication, nothing. It just shut down one day and it just stopped working, you know. So migrating wow. the business to a new payment process it would have just taken too long. You know, like, hey, you know what? I don't need this. So that's when I notified all my customers. I, I just gave them free service for about a year. While I allowed, I helped them move their websites to different uh, hosting providers, and then that was it. You know, like that's when I was really done. And then I started looking for a job. So yeah, it's 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 hard to run a business here in Africa because of infrastructure problems and uh, the business environment that's just not set up for that doesn't set you up for success. You know, so getting a job was another challenge. You know, because the economy in Zimbabwe is not grades right now and so um, and that was the first thing and the second thing was the skills I had learned were that I couldn't get a job for the skills I had so I had I was forced to get a remote job from international companies so mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that has that comes with its own challenges but uh, fortunately I did get a job I have a job now I'm happy so yeah well, I'm glad to hear that so um Okay, let's step back into something else. There's another, mm-hmm. there's a project that I, th- I I believe you started, and I, I believe I saw the tweet when this idea started in your head that ended up being pie pie in a box. Yeah. Um, 
Do you want to dig into that? Because that's really, really cool. I read about it a, a bit more today, and it's really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, if you want sure. to tell us more about that. So what, what started this project is uh, part of the problems we've been talking about, the infrastructure problems here in Africa. You know, we, you go to a meetup, you're running a workshop, you want people to install some packages, and then the internet goes out or the power goes out, right? So that basically means you can't do anything and you just have to talk through what you would have done. So I, I got to a point where I, I attend a lot of conferences and I, I attend meetups and workshops and I do trainings uh, at these events. And that was my biggest frustration that I didn't have a reliable internet access or reliable power to run the workshops I needed to run. So I thought, hey, what could mm-hmm. I do to allow uh, like people in the workshops, guests, attendees, attendees to install the software and not be bothered by whether there was internet or not? And then I figured, what if I could download the packages I needed onto a little computer, build, uh, make it a Wi-Fi hotspot, have everyone connect to it, and then they could download packages. So that's when uh, I started tweeting about it, asking people or like how I could go about it. I did some research, and I figured it's actually not difficult because, um, firstly, Raspberry Pi is an affordable computer. At the time, mm-hmm. it's still available. It's still affordable. Um, you can buy like what one? Uh, got a very large, like the largest size SD card I could get. I think it was two hundred fifty-six gigs. And then I cloned the, the, the Python package repository. So it's like the NPM package repository if you're from JavaScript world. So that was about, the download was about 100 gigs. So I downloaded the packages and I found some software online that, that can recreate the structure of PyPI, which is the Python package index. So it recreated the structure and, and indexed, the, indexed the packages and then I put a web server in front of that, and then I configured the Raspberry Pi to act as a Wi-Fi hotspot. So you can now, using this tool, install, do a pip install package name from a local repository instead of going to the Python package index. You know, pip, the package manager can do that. It allows you to install from offline or local package repositories. So mm-hmm. whenever we, we'd have a, an event here in Zimbabwe, I'd do that. I'd set up the Raspberry Pi, everyone would connect to it, and they'd run that one command, they'd be able to install the packages that they needed. It's a, you know, it's a simple device, but it really went a long way in, in making sure I could teach the way I wanted to teach. You know, whether there's internet or there's power, we always had a little Wi-Fi connection that could uh, allow people to install software. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So do you put like a uh, SIM card in the Raspberry Pi and it uses that to connect to the internet, like mobile? Oh, no. So the Raspberry Pi, the, the model I have is, is the, the latest model. So it, it has well, uh, an Ethernet, Ethernet port and a mm-hmm. it has Wi-Fi as well. So the way I have it set up is I connect it to the internet via the Ethernet port and then set up a Wi-Fi hotspot on its Wi-Fi adapter. So I can download mm-hmm. packages using Ethernet and then uh, broadcast uh, Wi-Fi network using the Wi-Fi adapter. Now, alternatively, 
you can download packages on your laptop and then transfer them onto its little SD card because it uses an SD card as a hard drive. So mm -hmm. you can set up everything, all the files you need on your computer on, on the SD card and then transfer that to the Raspberry Pi. So it works just like a normal computer except without, you know, like all the fancy bells and whistles you'd expect from a, a powerful desktop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's super interesting. I know there's another project. It's not, it doesn't. Um, it's not meant for like Python or anything like that. But it's called Internet in a Box. I don't know if you I, know I, about I, that. Yes, yes. I came across it when I was when I was uh, working on 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 this. Yeah, yeah. It's a very similar project. It 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 they do mm -hmm. basically everything else. <laughs> you know, like uh, a lots of lots of like it's a digital library of uh, you know different websites and stuff yeah 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 like wikipedia and that kind of stuff so if you're exactly. in a if you're in a rural area you can like put that down somewhere and people can have access to it and then you know if you once a month just do an update from the internet to make sure you have the latest content mm -hmm. then you know people don't need internet access to be able to access all this which is amazing i mean it's it's the, it's sometimes the thing that stands between you and success is just having access to that to that content. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, it's great. I'm actually, Do you know? I'm actually thinking of doing something similar. Like uh, I've proven, you know, when I started this, it was just a proof of concept to see if I could do it. But now, what I want to do mm -hmm. is I want to take the same concept and use it to make like my own internet in a box. So I only do Stack Overflow and Wikipedia. So I found some. Uh, I found a lab tool called Kiwix that allows you to do this very easily. You know, it, it bundles all the software you need to serve up cloned content offline easily. So you just download the content, install this pack, this software, and it allows mm -hmm. you to, to to serve up something like Wikipedia or Stack Overflow easily. So I'm, that's the next thing I'm, I'm going to try. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, <clears throat> do you know if, there's, if there exists a similar thing to this for NPM, like NPM in a box? I actually haven't heard anything uh, like that. Um, so I, I wouldn't know. I once asked on my Twitter if anyone knew, but I didn't get any responses. So I'm not sure if, if, if it's there or people just uh, ignored me. I don't know. <laughs> Would it be, thinking about your experience creating pipeline in a box do you mm -hmm. think it would be um a lot of the work you've done is transferable to creating something like npm in a box with their with that with what you've done with that get a, have a lot of the infrastructure just reusable for that or is it very specific to pipeline i think it is the concepts rather are reusable because like i lose a lot of python packages to do this but i think the principles can be applied to uh, NPM. Now, I'm not sure how packaging works in the JavaScript world, but I imagine the JavaScript packages um, like take up much more space than the Python packages are. So you'd need to find a way to download packages that you can fit into a Raspberry Pi and then a way to index them and then serve them up. So probably for serving them up, you could use like a web server, like Nginx or something. And then yeah, indexing yeah. them, I don't know. They could, I'm sure there's something uh, NPM specific that you could do, but uh, you just need to find the right tools, but it's it should definitely be possible. Yeah, yeah. So why do, why do you use for indexing PyPy? Because I'm thinking like, um, what are, the name is just in my head now, it's hard again. So, so there's this thing called PyPI server. You know, you just yeah. you point it to where you have the you where you have the the Python packages downloaded. It's it runs through the the list and then creates an index. 
that makes it easy for the PIP tool to find the packet. You know, you can find the package based on that, the name or its metadata. You can figure out what dependencies it depends on. So it, mm -hmm. indexing it really is useful. It saves you a bunch of time in, instead of searching through the entire package repo every time you want to do a PIP install. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I wonder whether yeah, Algolia or something like that, I wonder if you can run that on a on a server with npm and use algolia to index the npm um registry that'd be mm -hmm. interesting uh, i'm really curious it'd if this be, is possible it'd, it'd, yeah it could be an interesting problem to solve yeah no, for sure because i mean um like you said i mean i'm sitting here now speaking to you and the only reason i can is because i'm plugged into a big battery because uh currently um we're being load shed, so we don't have electricity at the moment. So yeah. I have a, I know what that's like. I have a, yeah. So I have a big battery that I'm plugged in, and because of that, I still have internet access, and mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. actually, you know, I can actually speak to you. Um, and I only bought it this week, and it was very expensive. I had to, like, I had to put money aside, and thankfully, I have a business, so I could, mm -hmm. you know, I I did some extra work for some for extra clients. And um, so far, it seems like it was definitely a good buy, but it's not cheap and it's not something that's accessible to many people, unfortunately. So there's a lot of people around me sitting without electricity right now. So, yeah. you know, I, I again, did that recently, I, so I, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I can totally see a situation where you're in the middle of a workshop and boop, there goes the power and you're like, oh mm. boy, now what do we do? So being able to whip out a Raspberry Pi with NPM on it would be super useful. So I think it's yeah. something that as Mechanical Inc. should should spend some time on. And I might just need to um, uh, tap your brain for some knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. I'd, I'd love to actually see that because I know that would definitely have more, like more of a use case here than the Python because they're generally more JavaScript developers around than Python ones. So interesting, interesting. Yeah. So um, what I what I also saw is I think maybe PyPy in a Box presented an opportunity for yourself because you recently gave a talk about it at the Ubuntu Summit in Prague. Yes. How yes. was how was that experience? So what happened is interesting. Um, I gave a talk about the same project in Namibia at the Python conference in twenty. When, was, when did COVID start? 2020. Yeah. So I gave a conference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the last conference <laughs> I attended was just before COVID started. So in 2020, I gave a conference, a talk at Namibia. And one of the community managers at Canonical was in attendance at the conference. He heard the, con he heard the, the talk and, hey, that's actually a good idea. And so this year, he invited me to speak at the Ubuntu Summit. So Ubuntu Summit is... Uh, it's, a, it's a Ubuntu conference that uh, seeks to invite community members and canonical staff, put them in a room together for a few days and, and share stories about how people are using Ubuntu and Linux and open source in general. So I got to present about how I was using Ubuntu on a Raspberry Pi to do that. So giving that talk, you know, led to that opportunity to be invited to that conference. And it was my first time in Europe. I've never been to Europe, so I got to travel to Europe. Uh, give the talk, meet fantastic people from the Canonical team. Uh, it was at a, at a fantastic time. Yeah, it's always great. I remember the first time I went to the US um, when I started contracting at Mozilla. It was also mm -hmm. like a, a complete culture shock. Um, and uh, you can understand how, how there's so many... Um, 
tech companies because everywhere around you, like if you sit in a in a little coffee shop and you're just talking, everybody around you are talking about their startup and about this this yeah. problem they're having with this program, and so there's this energy in the air that's very mm-hmm. very uh, contagious. So I was wondering, you know, like with that conference that you were able to attend in Prague, and now that we're kind of we're kind of slowly walking our way out of the pandemic and um, starting to, but we've also learned some lessons about the fact that in-person events are great, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, the world doesn't have to come to a complete standstill if we can't get on a plane and fly somewhere. So, you know, we can mm-hmm. do a lot of these things virtually. But so do you think if we can, if we can install a more active um, conference circuit, so to speak, in mm-hmm. Africa, do you think that would foster a more active startup culture? Because that's the one thing that I find um, is very, very active in Europe and in the US. And I think a yeah. lot of great ideas come out of just the, this concept of trying something and mm-hmm. being willing to fail, but also being willing to pivot. But I do think, like I said, you have to have a culture. You have to have a an active community that 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 encourages this. So do you mm-hmm. think if we if we can somehow um maybe starting all virtually because that's also cheaper than having to fly all over the place and also better for the environment. Um mm-hmm. do you think if we can install like this idea of having more Africa focused conferences speaking about stuff like what me, what me and you have been talking about now the challenges and possible solutions. Do you think if 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 we can kickstart something like that that that'll by its very nature, install this idea of a startup culture? I think it would because, you know, like we all have uh, similar problems, you know, similar challenges we face. And I think now physical conferences, like physical meetups, would actually work better than virtual ones because I think, you know, the, the networking opportunity that gives you allows... Uh, people to just share ideas and talk about problems. You know, some of the things that yeah. people talk about come up even not not in the conference talk, but in the hallway track or in the dinners or in the lunches mm-hmm. or whatever, you mm-hmm. know. It's like we can share ideas and conferences or meetups are very good places to talk about stuff or to learn about stuff you don't really know, you know. So, because, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, like when you're to the conference, you can learn something you weren't aware that you didn't know, you know, like, oh, that could be really useful for this project that I'm trying to solve. You know, it, it allows you yeah. to, to make connections to and to learn learn stuff. So I, I, I definitely think that uh, conferences would help because we don't have enough conferences, I'd say, or, or meetups because most of the conferences mm-hmm. I've seen are enterprise conferences where yeah. you know like just companies are getting together and those those are not they're okay but they're they're like a, a a bottom line goal most of the time and I think we need more community focused uh, conferences that will just allow people to meet and share ideas and figure out a way to solve common problems. So yeah I think it would help. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah, a lot of those others are more trying to sell you their products and services than really mm-hmm. fostering a a community of makers. Um, so yeah, I agree. Uh, so you're a AWS certified cloud practitioner, by the way. Congratulations on, on having Thank achieved you. that. That's not no small feat. Um, but 
I do see that you also use a service called Divio. How do how do those differ, or are they more more similar than different? Uh, I'd say yeah, one is an abstraction over over the other. So with with like Divio is is a, an enterprise solution, right? The, what they what their goal is is to unify multiple clouds. So so say you have a business, you want to put your business on the cloud, but you don't want to deal with the complexity of choosing a cloud or you want to put some some information in one region or on one cloud and whatnot, they take care of all of that for you. So they just provide okay. a unified platform, you upload your code, and then you can choose through a drop-down, like what cloud do you want to put this on, what region do you want to put this on, and they take care of all that. So you could actually have an app that has, say, some data in Azure, some data in Google, and then some data in AWS in a specific region. They can take care of that for you. So I'd say that's, that's, that's how they differ. But at the end of the day, I mean, Divio does use AWS under the hood. Now, if I were to to release an app, develop an app, so I'd, there'd be times where I'd choose Divio and other times where I'd prefer to use AWS or another service. So Divio is mostly focused on enterprise. So you'll find that their paid plans are quite pricey. I think they, they, the mm. cheapest plan, last I checked, was like $150 a month or something. Um, but they had a very good free developer plan. So if I was just building a pet project that needed a home and a URL, load balancing and a server, I'd use Divio. You know, it's a very easy platform to mm-hmm. use. You, you download their CLI, you dockerize your project, you just push. The, it's, it's, it's very similar to Heroku. Okay. Um, so they're they're a nice platform, good documentation, really easy to set up uh, like Dockerized uh, applications and give them a, an online presence. But I'd say um, AWS is if I was running a business, I'd probably put my product on AWS or even Azure or any other cloud uh, because you get more options, more fine grained control over what mm-hmm. you spend your money on you know, AWS. So there's mm-hmm. easy solutions with AWS. If you just want to get an application online, there are solutions. You know, there are things like uh, Elastic Beanstalk. You know, you can use an Elastic Beanstalk to just put up a website online mm-hmm. and then Amazon will take care of auto-scaling, load balancing, security, uh, provisioning, and all that. Or if you have more skills, you can get a VPS. You can get a VPS from them and then do all that yourself. So it, it really depends on what you want to do, you know, how much time you have and how much money you're willing to spend. Because obviously yeah, AWS, yeah. like Elastic Beanstalk is more expensive because it's a managed service. So um, you get a lot of things out of the box and you pay more for it. So it, it really okay. depends. Okay. Yeah. okay, interesting. So on that topic, um, a lot of like, I've spoken to I've spoken to somebody before, Chelsea Adams, and she she also does quite a bit of um like the AWS kind of stuff, but she mm-hmm. she also does front end and that kind of thing. But she she's well versed when it comes to AWS, for example. Okay. Um, and I think and that one thing that she mentioned that I found interesting and 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 it's it's true. Um, most I don't want to say all because that would be unfair, but most of these boot camps or even even like longer term educational institutions that provide specifically um uh education around front end development um 
they stop short of, okay, now I can build a React application, but now how do I put it online? Maybe they'll show you how to do it with like using GitHub pages or something like that. But I mean, if yeah. you want to do a production app, that's not really, you know, the way you're going to go. Um, and so the one thing that she mentioned is there's a, there's a hole there that needs to be, um, needs to be filled. Um, in the sense that there's not really any good education, accessible good education out there to teach front-end developers, how do I put this app of mine online the right way? You know, yeah. it's easy to put it online, but how do I put it online the right way so that if I announce this on my social media network and some famous person retweets my thing and 10,000 people eat my website that is not going to go down and mm -hmm. also that I'm not going to tomorrow morning wake up and somebody's going to say still. why is there a bunch of porn on your URL because somebody oh, yeah. hacked your website yeah. so yeah. do you have any like tips or good resources or something that you can recommend to people if they want to like know how to do that the stuff the right way Man, I didn't know. I didn't know Frontend had this problem as well. I thought it was just a Python problem. <laughs> but yeah, ah, deployment is hard. Deployment is hard, which is which is actually one of the reasons why I got into DevOps. You know, I wanted to learn more about uh, deployment and how to how to do it and automate stuff and make it easy. You know, mm -hmm. but um, in terms of general tips, I don't have any resources I can think of right now. But I have a few tips that I'd like to give, you know, like there's, there's certain things that I think most people aren't taught in these boot camps about how to make deployments uh, go well. You know, the first thing I think is mm -hmm. to think about security from the get-go. You know, don't think, don't start thinking about security when you're ready to deploy. So that will help you avoid making mistakes that could later burn you. So you mentioned that you, you know, setting up a website and putting porn. So people can do that, you know, and, and one of the reasons why mm -hmm. some of these things are possible is, say you, you put up your code in Git, you know, so first thing, learn how to use Git correctly. If, you, if you, your project isn't really, doesn't need to be open source, don't make your code publicly available. Keep it private. That helps mm -hmm. uh, hide mistakes you may have made. Whereas if your project is publicly available and people can see information sensitive information you don't want them to see that's that gives them keys to doing bad mm -hmm. stuff on your website but uh, yeah. in, in a more general sense i'd say that the first thing to watch out for is just make sure you handle credentials correctly like don't don't uh hard code passwords and credentials into your code you know it's, that's easy to do when you just mucking around locally but it's it, you can forget to, to remove that stuff so don't don't yeah. put credentials uh, in, in the code and if you're using en environment files try and avoid adding them to git like don't track them don't push them up to github wherever you're mm -hmm. pushing your code so try and keep your code separate from your credentials so there are services you can use like uh, there's um, you could use password managers to manage your passwords you could use vaults password vaults that would uh, inject the oops, uh, credentials into your into your environment while you have it running locally so that you never have your credentials um, available in, in an unencrypted text file for instance you know so there's things like mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think key pass 
KeePass has an open source tool you can install in your environment that can manage credentials for you. There's something called HashiCorp Vault. Uh, you can install that on your server. It manages uh, secrets for you. And then once you're ready to deploy, I'd say make use of uh, environment variables on the deployment server. So whatever service you're deploying to, put your passwords there, like I mean, uh, the secrets and credentials there instead of hard coding. So that's the first thing mm, yeah. that would help uh, reduce the, the the risk of being hacked. It's not the only thing, but it, it really helps. And then I'd say second thing is... Um, if you can, if you can afford it, uh, you try and get a service that can, allows you to auto-scale easily. You know, like if you look at cloud solutions like AWS or Azure, they're, they're tools that allow you to auto-scale. So if you, mm-hmm. you, you put up your website and it gets popular, all those auto-scaling solutions will allow your Traffic will keep your website running even if it gets hit by like 10,000 requests or a lot of people start using it. You know, it will cost you yeah. money, but uh, it, it mm-hmm. will, you won't have to think about it because it's done for you. So if you can afford it, uh, look into something like that. And then I think the last thing I'd say is um, try and make your, your deployments repeatable. Right now, and I know for front end developers, this might mean learning some skills that they may not generally want to learn, but learn something about CI CD and how that works. If you can, if you can get an automated deployment pipeline going, do that because having that deploying code for you allow will allow you to um, run checks on your code, you know, to make sure that it, the, the tool catches any errors you could introduce early before you actually do the deployment. So you can look into that and uh, try and make the deployments as automated and as repeatable as possible. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think I think GitHub is, is doing a lot to make this more accessible um, through GitHub CICD, their you know, GitHub Actions mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Do you use yeah. something like Terraform? Not for the current projects I work on, no. Okay. Yeah, I know it's some folks no. at uh, Mozilla uses Terraform, and then uh, Kubernetes. I think is one of the other things yeah. that people use. Yeah, I use Kubernetes, but not not Terraform. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that those are all great tips, um, and I would highly recommend people look that up. And I'll I'll add links to all of these things um, when we publish mm-hmm. this episode. Um, so in closing, something fun. Um, in your bio on your website, you said you like cutting wood. <laughs> yes. Tell yes, me more yes. about that. Tell me more about that. Okay, so software development is very stressful, and you need an outlet to, you know, release that stress. Yes. Cutting wood is a very good outlet. Wood doesn't complain. Wood can take a beating. So <laughs> I like to I like to cut wood. But no, on a on a serious note, um, you know, it's very similar to software development you know you need to think about what you want to make you need to design what you want to build you need to choose the right tools Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you need to follow you know like a a logical sequence of steps to get to to make whatever it is you want to make and so it's a very i'd say it's a good hobby to to pursue if you're a software developer because many of the skills you learn you know from developing software are easily transferable to 
to woodworking. You know, you just mm-hmm. need to find mm-hmm. the right tools, determine what you want to build. Like, I, I don't make any fancy furniture or anything like that. I can't do that. I make very simple tables and desks, you know, like flat things, gotcha. not flat corners, you know. But it's, it's, it's a really nice, fulfilling feeling to work on something you actually built yourself. Yeah, you for know? sure. And like mm-hmm. I said, if, if, if you're stressed, you can hammer the wood all, like, all day and not all night <laughs> because you're, you're probably going to make something good out of it. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoy I really enjoy doing that and watching videos of, of experienced carpenters and woodworkers doing DIY stuff. I'm I'm really heavy, heavily into DIY. I believe you should uh, every person should at least know how to fix something. Yeah, you for know? sure. So for sure. I, I really enjoy watching that stuff and trying it on my own when I have the time. Yeah, yeah. I love those videos of the people that do the wood turning where they uh-huh, have, uh-huh. you know, those big fancy machines that like take this yes, yes. rough piece of wood and they just, they turn it and it's this beautiful shapes and just these gradients that the colors of the wood forms and it's so i know right meditative to watch that stuff it's just beautiful Mm -hmm. so i can imagine if if, you know if you if you can get to that point where you can actually do that yourself it'll be it'll be an amazing experience but i think even starting with a with a pocket knife and a piece of wood can can be a nice start definitely definitely i have a friend who actually started that way you know he used to make these little walking sticks and yeah, then yeah. now he makes he, he has a he runs a business and has makes furniture you know so wow, yeah, you can, can start as a hobby and uh turn into a business yeah for sure that's great well thank you so much for this conversation i really really enjoyed it it was lovely to talk to to somebody uh, in africa that 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 shares a lot of the pain <laughs> that that mm-hmm. i go through oh, yeah. as well but um but uh-huh. i think you also have some unique challenges that that we in South Africa might not always face, um, but still, I think I think yes, there's a lot of opportunities, and I think we should connect more um, mm-hmm. and cross pollinate. And I'm definitely going to hit you up about the whole NPM in a box. Um, I'm definitely going to yeah, contact yeah. you and let's let's chat you about should. that and and make that a thing. I think that'll be super interesting to do, but also super useful. Mm-hmm. So thanks so much mm-hmm. for the conversation and. Um, have a lovely rest of your Thanks day for me. and um, all the best for the future. And I'm looking forward to seeing all the wonderful things you do. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mycenae Network podcast. If you're not already, please subscribe, store, and leave a review for us in your podcatcher of choice. This helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners. You can also find and follow us on Twitter at Network Mycelium and join the community on Discord. All the links are available in the show notes.